0: Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Have you ever doubted yourself or felt like others doubted you? Today's text deals with the surety or the certainty of the Christian faith. Five questions are posed to us that if we're not careful, we might think that we're on our own when it comes to defending our faith, or that we're on our own warding off those who would like us to leave faith in Christ. But today, from Paul's letter to the Romans, we find questions that seek to move us away from pessimism into celebration, to understand that we are fortified beyond comprehension in Jesus. So today, will you hear this word of God and know that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus? It's one thing to feel good about your faith. It's one thing to hear these words and to say, okay, this is true. It's another altogether that when life gets hard and you feel tired and the heat is turned up around you, that you still say, God is for me and nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. Let's read the text from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen to that word. What a powerful word of scripture that is. Just beautiful words that we could just pour over. You you could just read those and and just feel great. But there is a lot wrapped up in these words. We can't even begin to discuss everything in the passage today. Uh, But I want to share and primarily I was reading a particular commentary this week, uh, John Stott's commentary on the Romans, God's good news for the world, and I loved his take on these words. So a lot of what you're going to hear today comes from him, not my words, his, but I just think they're powerful words for us to understand. Paul, he is emphasizing the steadfastness of God's love as he works in all things for the good of those who love uh, love him. And in chapter 8, If you look at Romans chapter 8, it begins with this idea that there's no condemnation, and it ends with this idea that there's no separation. And in both cases, it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is a message. These words from Romans here are to encourage the life of a believer. So, what shall we say of these things? That's how Paul starts, and he wants us to think. What shall we say of these things? so what things is Paul talking about he's he's used this phrase a couple other times in Romans what shall we say of these things he used it back in Romans chapter six verse one and then a little later in chapter uh, in verse fifteen of the same chapter and then chapter seven verse seven he says what shall we say then but here in Romans chapter eight he says we as we started today and, and in verse thirty one what shall what then shall we say of these things oh what's he talking about? And Paul's referring to the words he had just written, verses 28 through 30 of Romans 8, where he says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're told in those verses that that nothing can harm the people of God. Well, at least we're told in the verses we're looking at today. That God is working all things together for the good. For those who are called to his purpose, he's writing to the believer. And so I just want to share from John Stott's commentary, what we read verses 31 through 39, he calls these unanswerable questions. That is, questions that you, you just can't say, well, yeah, someone's against us. Or someone can be against us. You'll find with each question in our text today, you can ask it in the wrong way. You can ask it pessimistically. But when you put them alongside the promises of God that you read in those verses 28 through 30, you know, that God works all things together for the good, for those who are called to his purposes. When you put alongside those promises, the questions take a new form. So I just want to walk real quickly with you today through these five questions. And the first question that's asked in our text in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is this. Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Perhaps you're suspicious of such a question. Perhaps you feel like a lot of people are against you. Perhaps you can think of people who are angry with you, who maybe even want to see you fail, or who themselves, have you ever had someone in your life who is miserable? They're just, they're just a miserable person, and it almost feels like they would like you to be miserable with them. That's, that's a very frustrating situation. So maybe you're hearing this and you're going, who can be against us? And you're going, a lot of people can be against us. But that's if we ask the simple form of Paul's question, who can be against us? And as we know, anyone and everyone can be against us. Anything and everything can be against us. And if you're a Christian and you're asking the same question, who can be against me? Well, we know that sin is against us and, and that we have the sin nature in us right and we know that satan is certainly against us and we know that non-believers are often against us and sadly sometimes even other christians can be against us because we live in a broken world and that is the natural way of things when we have to acknowledge the sin nature but paul doesn't ask the simple version who can be against us we know the answer to that question anyone can be against us even ourselves But Paul asks this, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? And this is a different question altogether. The question is not whether people oppose the Christian or not, or the church or not. The question becomes, who has the power to oppose the Christian and win? You'll have opposition. But now, You have the power of God in your corner. It's like traveling around in life with a 500-pound gorilla behind you that is ready to step up and clear the way for you. Have you ever seen a picture? I've seen these all over the place. Uh, It's like a picture of a puppy or a bear cub or a a lion cub, and, and they're growling. They're roaring at some sort of adversary. It's a young animal facing danger, and they're growling. Uh, And, you know, we could take the example of a puppy, maybe a German shepherd puppy, and they're they're, they're trying to look fierce at someone that they're trying to scare away, and they are kind of proud of themselves because their adversary has turned tail and run. But what the puppy doesn't know is that mom or dad or, let's say, maybe a full-grown German shepherd for the puppy, right, is looking, is right behind them, and they're looking very fierce. They're giving the real warning. They have the real power. And that's why the adversary runs away. And so Paul says, if God is for us, if he is behind us, giving us power, supporting us, if he's the real force behind us, who can be against us? No one. No one has the power to overcome the strength of God. We may feel the heat of conflict. We may get knocked low right now in this moment but no adversary has the power to definitively defeat God. Now, not everyone can say that God is for them. Most people think that God is for them. And God wants the best for everyone, and he wants to be for everyone. But he also allows us to refuse what he has for us. So John Stott points out, that the fiercest words in the Old Testament are when God declares that he is no longer for you. And God is, did this to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. I mean, there's lots of examples. I'll just read one from Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 8. that says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. So you can have God against you, not for you, but he wants to be for you if you would just receive Jesus. And today, if you're a Christian or you would become a Christian, you need not fear anything because God is for you. He's for us. Roy Loren in his commentary puts it this way, the whole Trinity protects us. The Holy Spirit is for us as our interceptor, intercessor to help our infirmities. The Father is for us in working out all things for the good. The Son is for us as our intercessor at the right hand of God. No one is formidable, formidable enough to overcome this sort of fortification. The whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is for us. So the first question should now be read. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. So let's go to the second question. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a wordy question. I get it. And sometimes when the questions are wordy, we lose the point of what they're asking. And it's a question we might struggle with. And it boils down to, will God graciously give us all things? That's the question we tend to ask. And uh, I think many of us can say that we've prayed for things that have not come to pass. There have been things in life that we felt we needed, and they weren't given. We hear a phrase like, will not God graciously give us all things? And we go, "I, I think there are times when maybe that hasn't happened. But that's not the question that Paul is posing. Paul writes these words. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I Meaning Paul starts by telling us that God has given us the greatest gift. He starts at the biggest thing, his son, Jesus. And Paul tells us that God started with the best. And if he's willing to give us his best, then he will certainly take care of the least, the small things, the little needs in our lives. That type of thinking of starting with the best and going to the least is echoed in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, where God starts with the best and how much more for a lesser. But he'll do not just read the text here. It's, it's Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the best. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood. The best, right? How much more shall we be saved from him? By him from the wrath of God, for if while we were still enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? So it's, he's saying, you know, if we were rescued as enemies of God, won't we be reconciled now as those who are redeemed? Well, looking at it, a question like this, a question that asks, will not God graciously give us all things? This doesn't mean that all of our whims and our desires and all that we think is needed shall be given, but God will ensure that we have every need taken care of in our journey from now until heaven. Everything that we need as we journey to heaven, it will be taken care of. Maybe not the way that we think it should be taken care of, but the way it's needed to be taken care of. So we should read this question, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will He not also graciously give us all things? And we should read that, going yes, God will provide in every way that we need. Third question that Paul poses in this passage: Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's in verse thirty-three. Who can accuse God's people? Who can charge them in the courts? And if we ask it that way, there's a uh, the the way that Paul writes the question, and then there's kind of like the simple way that we. Tend to to boil out the questions, and and we can ask who can accuse God's people. And if we ask it that way, which we often do, the truth is anyone can accuse God's people. I think some accuse a Christian maliciously, but many accuse because they just don't know what they see when they see a Christian. They see judgment, and perhaps they see their own sin. When really they're looking at a Christian, seeing not judgment, but how the grace of Christ works in the life of a believer, and and something strange happens. They accuse because they don't know what to do. Just a little funny story here. Some man named John was driving home late one night when he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to be suspicious of his passenger. Just who is this guy? John checked to see if his wallet was safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them, and you know, the wallet wasn't there. So John slammed on his brakes and ordered the hitchhiker out and said, hand over the wallet immediately. The frightened hitchhiker handed over a billfold and John drove off. When he arrived at home, he started to tell his wife about the experience, but she interrupted him saying, Oh, before I forget, John, did you know you left your wallet at home this morning? Sometimes we can look at others and see the things in them that scare us and we make assumptions about who they are and so we make accusations. I think that happens With non-believers and the Christian, well, we live in a time in our nation where there is increasing opposition to the Christian and to Christ, and many would like to see Christians fall, or even even if it's through false accusations. And you may feel like you have accusers and doubters in your own circle of friends or family, and maybe they wouldn't mind if their Christian friend was brought down a notch. And sometimes those accusers they succeed temporarily. And it's sad to say, more often than not, those accusers seem to win. But Paul is telling us that this is different. It's different in the court that actually matters. See, accusations for them to hold weight have to be done in a court. Uh, And Paul is telling us, in the court that matters, you've got someone in your corner. And so then the question needs to be asked, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, in the court that matters, nobody. Not in the court of law that marks eternity. The fourth question that's raised in this text, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who is to condemn? This question is much like those about the one of who would accuse. And uh, perhaps you have felt a little condemned. But then, who is really to condemn? That's that's the wrong question to ask. Who is to condemn? It's like the accused. Who can accuse? Uh, Anyone can accuse. Anyone can condemn. But in the court that matters, in the sentencing that matters, we have God in our corner. We may lose hundreds of times here on earth, but when it comes to eternity, Jesus ensures that we are not condemned. And then Paul goes on and he writes, he names four dimensions of Christ that prevent us from being condemned. He says we have Christ who died, and he died in our place. He took the condemnation that we deserve. And then we're told that not just that he died, but that he secondly was raised, Death was defeated. John Stott even writes about just that little idea of Jesus being raised, saying that perhaps that raising, uh, being raised by the Father, was a sign that the sacrifice of the death was accepted. And then we're told, thirdly, that he's at the right hand. Jesus is in a place of authority. He has the power to advocate on our behalf when we face condemnation. And fourthly, we're told he's the one who intercedes for us. He's the go-between for us and the Father. That's who Jesus is. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So who can condemn us? I could simply say no one. But I think this is better. Who is to condemn? It no longer matters. Jesus stands in our place. Whatever condemnation we deserved, he absorbs. And the last question that Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's there in verse 35. Again, there are many things in life that try to separate us. They try to put a wedge between us and the love of Christ. We might feel separated from Christ's love, Paul even lists what might try to wedge between us and Jesus' love. He, he talks about tribulation or troubles. He talks about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. This is all identified. All these are identified are things that can separate us possibly. They make us feel like we could be separated from Jesus' love. Rather, nothing removes us from Jesus' love. You can feel like you've been separated, but nothing can separate you. Except, and this is the one thing I would say, we can remove ourselves from Jesus' love. I can turn my back on Christ. I can walk back into sin. And what's odd is in that moment, Jesus hasn't stopped loving me. But I've turned away from him, and I've let a wedge fall between me and him. It's more on my part than his. The beautiful part is a turnaround. Jesus has love. Once again, he'll offer forgiveness if I would just repent and receive. Would you repent and receive? Paul knows about all the things, the hardships of life that feel like they get between us and God. And, and, and Paul writes about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness, all those things. He experienced them. He's not just writing about things he doesn't know. He has experienced these personally. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24-27, through 27, Paul writes these things about his own hardships as a Christian. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, and danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from gentiles, and danger in the city, and danger in the wilderness, and danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul knows these things, it can seem like they can wedge between us and Christ, but he says nothing can separate us. So when he writes that question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one can. Nothing can. So we have five questions, each of which we might pessimistically ask and get the wrong answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also With him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then we read in verse 37, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see these questions, these five questions that all of them are, you know, who can, who can separate us? Well, no one can. You know, all of them that Paul says have obvious answers. What they really tell us is not about us, but about who God is. And they're telling us that nothing can get in the way of God's plan. Nothing can overrule God's generosity. Nothing can accuse or condemn the Christian when it really matters. And nothing can peel God's love away from us, Christ's love. And just finally, as John Stott puts it, God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. It might seem strange. You probably are getting tired of hearing these words of scripture, but I want to close this sermon by actually just reading this text from Romans again. And I want you to hear and know the truth in these words. We live in strange and in divided times. Each day seems like it presents a whole new challenge and a whole new doubt. And, and and just puts doubt on the things that we think and feel could be sure. And, and so, no, these words are true. Will you believe them? So one more time. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father God, allow each person hearing these words to know the truth behind them. Allow each Christian to be fortified by knowing that you are for us. Let us understand that no power brought against us is greater than you, Lord. We may struggle, we may face hardship, but where it matters, in eternity, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Let us celebrate that, Lord, and let people around us see that, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen go with Jesus.